0: Yeah.
1: You're listening to Irish Radio Canada, at home and abroad. And this time of the year, I always like to reach out and to try and catch up with the diplomatic community that represent Ireland in Canada, and how the year has been for them, uh, what has happened, what might be in the pipeline. And I'm delighted to be sitting with Ambassador Emma McKee, who is in on his final. Sojourn he's not into his final lap yet. he's getting close to doing his his lap of honor, probably, <laughs> but he will be leaving us in the middle of the year, and we will have a new ambassador later in the year. Ambassador McKee, thank you very much for taking the time and a real pleasure to have you back in chat with you
0: yeah, thanks austin. just want to wish uh, all your listeners and and you and your family the best for twenty twenty four and uh yeah, actually, it, sh- it should be a good year. I know we'll be busy we were certainly we were certainly busy in twenty twenty three you know and, um, and I should just say it's, it's, it's not over yet, but it's been a terrific posting. Um, and even though we had the pandemic for two years, I think we, we did a lot in terms of reaching out on social media, podcasting on a YouTube channel. We did uh, virtual, um, St. Patrick's Day receptions, you know, so, um, and I know that a lot of, uh, Irish organizations and community organizations in Canada kept going. And not only do they keep going, they were a huge support uh, to people uh, across Canada and particularly in the Irish community, because it was very isolating uh, during the pandemic. And, uh, you know, really the organizations that people had devoted very often their whole lives to, to, um, these organizations came good in the sense of, you know, being a support for people, having that outreach, having that care and concern, even to the point, for example, in, in Toronto, I know that they were giving out food packages because some, uh, yeah, particularly young Irish people in Toronto, you know, working in the hospitality industry, which just came to a grinding halt. Um, but there was also a lot of uh, services provided by, uh, you know, psychological and support services. You know, so that was a real, I think that was a real indication of the vibrancy of the the Irish Canadian community. You know, and that's that's been that's been great to see. It's Been great to see how it's been. Uh, rejuvenated as well by the new Irish uh, that have been coming into Canada, effectively since the the global financial crisis, uh, into Toronto, into Vancouver, um, but all over. And um, so, yeah, I think we're at a really interesting moment in in the kind of the history of the Irish in Canada. There's a real sense of discovery about what they are, about the contribution that they've made here, and taken taken great pride in it. You know, because the Irish in Canada, I think they've been playing a bit of second fiddle to the Irish in in America for all kinds of reasons. It's been a forgotten story, you know, so coming here and uh, in my time, discovering that story has been, has been really enriching and rewarding, you know, so that, that certainly is something I'll, I'll I'll take away with me, you know? Um, So yeah, it's, it's been great. And we've got, uh, we know we had a great year Um, because it was a kind of a normal year. um, We had uh, St. Patrick's day reception for the first time in the residence. We had, uh, the minister, Stephen Donnelly here, and then he went down to Toronto. In July, we had Minister of State for the Diaspora, uh, Sean Fleming here. He was in, um, Ottawa, Montreal. And it was a great reason for us to, to head up to the Irish Festival in Miramichi. I mean, tremendous Irish community up there. Great pride in their ancestry, you know, and a fantastic, um, a fantastic, uh, a cultural experience up in Miramichi you know so uh yeah it's it's been it's been a it's been a good year it's been a busy year and a good year
1: so as you mentioned when you started out it was during the pandemic and that restricted your ability to connect face to face with a lot of people Hmm. and i know one of the projects that you got stuck into was your 50 irish lives and while the pandemic prevented you from face to face did it give you that um time to do some academic research that may have helped that project come to uh, as come to the table.
0: Well, it was. Yeah. It, yeah. Funny. I don't remember being having a huge amount of extra time because, I, you know, uh, when you're when you're a kind of an ambassador and and irrespective of whether you're out and about, there's so much there's so many commitments in terms of, well, like, for example, all our meetings were VCs. Um, the email traffic was seemed to be an awful lot heavier as well, so there was a lot of uh, time taking up and managing, you know, a job without having the benefit of travel and meetings. But yeah, I mean, any any posting I've gone to, I've I've tried to find where what were what were the what was the background and. Even in my time in Korea, I discovered some great Irish connections between the Irish and Korea, particularly during the Korean War. Similarly, in Israel, I found really amazing connections, uh, but nothing to compare with the connections I found here. So, um, but certainly, the 50 Irish Lives project was a way into a much bigger story because it was only when I began looking for people who are Irish-born and who had either made an impact here or who, who had lived lives emblematic of the immigrant experience, that I began to realize, oh, my God, this is a big story. I mean, I expected to find a kind of a scattering of, of profiles that you could do, um, and but no, I had no idea that no matter where you looked, you were going to find Irish influence at the most foundational level within Canada. Whether it was the fact that the RCMP, the Mounties, were based on the Royal Irish Mounted Constabulary or, for example, Eaton's Department Store, uh, three governor generals all at a critical period around Confederation. I mean, Darcy McGee, you couldn't avoid uh, him, but a, a hugely influential figure. But the uh, the main, uh, the architect of Canadian jurisprudence, uh, for example, uh, James Robert Gowan. Uh, the founder of uh, natural history in Canada, you know, uh, John McCowan. Uh, the guys who op- who explored and opened up the prairie northwest, you know, people like John Palliser um, and uh, William F. Butler. Uh, the military leaders who suppressed uh, the Louis Real revolt. All, you know, Garnet Woolsey from from uh, Dublin, Middleton, Frederick Middleton from Belfast. It's just everywhere. I mean, and then once having, having kind of isolated Guy Carton, for example, from Straman and his brother, uh, the founder of Nova Scotia, Richard Buckley from Dublin, uh, on and on it goes. So as I did all of the profile, not I didn't, I, I should say it's a consortium of writers. And I want to do a shout out to Professor Mark McGowan, who's my uh, true partner in this. He's absolutely fantastic. Um, so we've done a number of the profiles and we have a consortium of the writers who have stepped up. Uh, but as you saw these lives, the kind of epic story of the Irish uh, emerged uh, because we've been coming here for 300 years. Um, And it struck me very forcibly that this wasn't a story of emigration. Of course, emigration was a subset, but it was really a story of transatlantic colonialism. This is one colony, the Irish, essentially helping to build and and settle and create another colony, which is is Canada. Um, And it happens in in four phases. You have the the kind of the the Irish aristocracy, the Anglo-Irish come over, hugely influential um, then you've Protestant farmers coming to settle. They're leaving Ireland after 1800s. Why? Probably the rebellion of 1798, the loss of the parliament, a sense of insecurity. But they're the bedrock of Irish immigration in the 1810s and 1820s. Then you've Catholic immigration coming over. They're coming for uh, construction jobs in the canals. The Fortification of Canada, which was inspired by Arthur Wesley, uh, another Irishman, then they're farming and they're moving into the uh, the lumber industry. And of course, the lumber industry in Canada is really there's so many Irish involved uh, in it as leaders in, in the lumber industry, which is the backbone of the Canadian economy for the 19th century. And then the final wave are are the kind of the influencers like Darcy McGee and Ogle Gowan and James Robert Gowan and, and other people like that. So it really did kind of emerge from these individual lives that you you could paint a much bigger picture. The big issue we had was trying to retrieve the lives of women. Um, you know, they're either forgotten about or anonymized. So we've made we've really tried to retrieve some of them from, from the obscurity of history. You know, and that that's that'll be an ongoing challenge, you know. Um but overall, yeah, we're we're heading up towards the 50 mark and so we'll be looking for a publisher in earnest. But um, and we'll have in the book, hopefully, uh, we will have some kind of survey essays as well. So I think it's going to be, it'll, it'll certainly help capture a story that has been forgotten. Um, forgotten because the famine is when really Irish immigration to Canada really comes to an end. And people in Ireland think that emigrate, when they think of emigration, they think of the United States because after the famine, 90% of transatlantic immigrants are going to the United States. Um, and so the famine is a, it's a big event in itself, which very often people don't look what happened before the famine. Um, but B, it's also, uh, the United States looms so large. And of course, the, the United States then becomes a global, a global power. As one, uh, David Wilson, uh, the historian, um, who also contributes to the collection said, if you're a Republican in the United States, you're going with the grain. If you're a Republican in Canada, you're going against the grain. So. So there's that, you know. So yeah, it's really been a fascinating project, and I think has expanded our uh, our understanding of the dynamics of, between Ireland and, and and Canada over the centuries.
1: Ironically, when you express the depth of that relationship and the influence that the Irish had, one would have thought nearly this should have been New Hibernia as distinct from Nova Scotia down in Nova Scotia, but that um that the Irish were so pervasive across the whole country, and yet you talk about how the women were anonymized or were written out, but in many ways the Irish were anonymized and written out. Individual characters survived, but the Irish as an ethnic group um, did not obtain the prominence that one would have expected given the influence they would have had. I think that's
0: very true. It's a very well-taken point because um, the Irish, I think, were partly responsible for this themselves in that in coming to a very uh, imperial, royal, uh, Protestant, Anglophone society, um they were fitting in. And so they would, uh, they, they certainly, the Catholic Irish would have downplayed their Irishness in a way by dropping the mac or the o sometimes, or converting to Methodism or Protestantism. So there was a way of kind of getting on in Canada because it was so. Predominantly uh, uh, a royal and imperial, so there was there was an element of that, and 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 you can't second guess those decisions. The second point, of course, is that, and I think this is where uh, it affected the perception in Ireland. Up until the Rising of 1916, Canada was the future, and I often say that Canada was the future Ireland never had. The vast majority of of nationalists in Ireland. Um, certainly after the failure of the Fenian raids in, in Canada and, and so on, the vast majority of nationalists in, in, in Ireland wanted what Canada had, a parliament within a dominion. So you would have, uh, you know, Parnell, Parnell came to Canada, uh, John Redmond came to Canada, other members of the Irish parliamentary party. And as, as Darcy McGee himself said, you know, if you give us a parliament, we will be as loyal as Canada. This was the model. And there is a huge paradigm shift with 1916 that really it's such a jarring shift from essentially the desire for the Canadian model to be good good members of the British Empire to being essentially rebels and Republicans. That it it, it leaves stranded an awful lot of people, including those who had had listened to John Redmond and, and fought in the First World War on behalf of Little Belgium, but also independent Ireland. They were left stranded. Uh, Canada was, was stranded intellectually. It was something that we weren't interested in anymore. Uh, we wanted a republic and so on. So the the, the shift in 1916 is absolutely decisive, you know. Um, so that's why I think uh, it's really interesting to look at the story of the Irish in Canada because in retrieving that story, we're actually retrieving a story about the complexity of our own nationality within Ireland and how the struggle for independence kind of simplified things. You know, I sometimes make the point that when uh, W.B. Yeats talked about 1916 being a terrible beauty is born, you could say it's a terrible simplicity. Um, And so I think looking at the multiplicity of Irish identities and loyalties, which shift over the century, I mean, they're always shifting from one generation to the next. I think it's really interesting because there's probably, and I would certainly say definitely, Far less that separates Irish unionists from Irish nationalists than the current kind of force field demands, um, and that there has to be a room for all of these versions of identity uh, in United Ireland or Ireland. You know, whether whether that's a notional thing that we aspire to, or it's something that turns out to be much more <laughs> much more proximate, we do, we don't know. You know, so I really think that the, the story of the Irish in Canada is is valuable for for all of those kind of reasons.
1: Interesting when you should men- mention that, that the commonality between the, what would be unionism and nationalism, because early on in the century uh, last century, unionism would have been very much something that was prominent and identifiable mm-hmm. uh, and that it had trans uh, come across the, trans, uh, the transatlantic and um, it had migrated from the north of Ireland to Canada, where you had the unionist being in positions of power.
0: Yes. Uh, yes. Yeah.
1: So and there was a perception to some degree that they weren't Irish.
0: Yeah. You see, this is the funny thing about about, you know, who, very often what happens and you, you see it in the case of the Anglo-Irish, they're they're Anglo in Ireland, but they're Irish in England. That's what ha- That's how they're seen. Um, but I also I don't want to paint a rosy picture either. I mean, listen, uh, the tensions between unions and nationalists uh, were very much played out in Canada, as we as we know. I mean, Toronto was called, you know, the Belfast of North America and and for good reason. Um, But it seemed also that unionists and orange men and nationalists and so on in Canada, while while they were it was quite contentious for for many decades, eventually they found, you know, that that Canada was spacious enough for all of them to kind of to kind of uh, find find a way to live. And so you take somebody like Ogle Gowan, who was the first Grand Master of the Orange Order um and uh, uh he comes over he comes over to uh to Canada he's based around Brockville not far away um but eventually he loosens up as well and starts looking for catholic votes you know so in a way Canada was a it was a it was a good example for how different traditions can find a way to to live together i mean and certainly the the expansiveness of Canada lent itself to that i think the tragedy of ireland was that having abolished the parliament in 1800 London left uh left us with just kind of sectarian tensions that played out as things came to a crisis in the, at the end of the 19th century and into the 20th century I like to think and I know it's 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 all it's kind of count, it, it's counter narrative and counterfactual history but if if in that narrow time frame the parliament hadn't been abolished. We would have had a parliament which within 30 years would have had to admit Catholics. So you would have had Catholic MPs and, and Protestant MPs kind of finding a way to live together in a parliament within a parliament within a parliamentary culture and so on, you know. But again, it's counterfactual history, but I think the damage that the parliament, the abolition of the parliament did was absolutely enormous. And I have a sense that we probably wouldn't have had a famine actually, uh, if we'd had local administration um and and the supreme irony is that the the aristocrats the anglo irish who voted themselves out of existence ultimately paid a very heavy price for that because it was the london parliament that imposed the encumbered states act which was really the death warrant for for the anglo irish landed class after after the famine you know so there's a there's a lot of uh there was a lot of paths not taken and and alternatives there you know but uh yeah it's it', it it's a fascinating relationship across the Atlantic. Absolutely.
1: So leaving history aside and yeah. coming up to twenty twenty three. Yes, because <laughs> it can't all be compressed into one year. Um, you got was it was was it twenty twenty two or twenty twenty three? You went up north.
0: Oh uh, yeah, no, it was uh, June of uh, twenty twenty three. June of last June, actually, we went on yeah. a, a trip to the Arctic. Yeah. Uh, Arctic Canada, yeah. absolutely fascinating. I mean. It was organized by Global Affairs Canada, and we, we took a plane, and then we had our own plane, which was great. So it was me and a bunch of ambassadors and officials from Global Affairs Canada. And we really did. Uh, we, we started off in uh, Yellowknife, and then we went to Whitehorse and um, uh, uh, Dawson City, for example, and then further north up to Ullahattuk and uh, Ullavik and uh, up to Cambridge and Resolute and across then to Iqaluit and down to Kujawak. It was absolutely fascinating um and uh yeah i mean a, 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 just an absolutely enormous region uh, very thinly populated um uh, highly dependent on federal government subsidies and support uh very dependent on diesel um there i i I was joking that there was there's no life up there without diesel uh diesel generators and transport and so on, but of course, it became a running joke in my uh in the group uh because everybody I would meet would I would ask, is there an Irish connection? Do you have an Irish connection? And I have to say I found Irish all over the Arctic. Uh there's Peter up there running the running the grocery store up and one of the furthest places we went up in Cambridge was from Monkstown. Uh, the director of the logistics station up in Resolute, as far north as we went, her mother was from Dublin. Um and in a I was having we were at this dinner with Inuit leaders and one of the Inuit leaders had come from Rankin rankin uh, uh inlet and he, he said i said i just happened to turn to him i said well i said Cono, do you have any irish relatives and he says oh he says my grandfather was born in Yuri and i says i don't believe you i says my grandfather was born in newton hamilton is only 10 miles up the road so it was quite funny and then i told him well you'd be entitled to irish citizenship so on a ne- his next trip to ottawa we met up for a coffee and i gave him the forms <laughs> for his irish citizenship I mean, you couldn't make it up. It was just, it was quite incredible finding so many Irish connections up there, you know. Um, but aside from that, it was interesting to see the uh, the impact of climate change. A lot more snow up there. It's actually quite, it's usually quite arid. But then the snow, um, the snow changes things. Um, before we arrived at Pond Inlet, the day before we arrived at Pond Inlet, two experienced uh, Inuit um, crashed through the ice and their skidoo and drowned because the ice had snow on it, which is it insulates it and it was weaker than they could anticipate. Um, and as they, the, the, the Inuit told us, they, the, the seasons are sh- They've all, the, all the seasons have shifted. So it's much harder to, it's much harder to, um, uh, to predict, uh, the annual cycle. Um, it's also interesting too that, uh, there's a huge resilience up there. Um, you know, they, they preserved a lot of their lifestyle, you know, they're hunting and fishing for a lot of their food up there. Um, and language preservation is very, very important to them. Um, their sense of autonomy is very important to them. Um, I have to say where they're given the chance to build their own, um, their own parliaments and, and, and government centers, they're wonderfully expressive architecturally of their own, of their own worldview. Um, And, uh, yeah, very, very vibrant place, very magical place. The further north you went, the the more exotic it became and the more alluring it became, you know. Um, But it was a real privilege, I have to say, uh, to have that. Uh, Not not something that uh, is easily managed because, I, I mean, I would say this, even if you were your own millionaire and you had your own plane, you couldn't have done it because without Global Affairs Canada setting up the meetings, which take a long time, knowing where to go and knowing to and knowing how to set up the kind of experiences we had. Global Affairs Canada kind of did an absolutely uh terrific job. It's actually and it's not just uh it's not just, for example, that um, you know, I'm I'm off on a skite and wasn't that great. You know, I did a report, but it also will feed into Ireland's development of its own Arctic policy. Um and I've been talking with our other uh, my fellow, uh, uh, colleagues in foreign affairs in, in Oslo and Copenhagen and, and Helsinki and so on. And were able, based on this visit, to get a greater sense of what life for the indigenous is in the Arctic. One of the comparative advantages we have is, is language acquisition and preservation. And the indigenous are very interested in how we did that in Ireland. Um, I only regretted that after it was only after I had uh, finished the trip. And I subsequently got uh, saw a news clipping because of a guy called Mick Mallon. And Mick Mallon had, um, uh, he was born in Northern Ireland uh, back in 1933 or something like that. But he had, he had moved to uh, the Canadian Arctic, particularly Nunavut, and devoted his life to uh, recording, uh, learning, recording, and teaching uh, Inuktitut, the language. Um, and his, he made it very accessible. Um and he was a firm believer that an could be learned by anybody um and he's left a huge legacy um in none of us in terms of uh language preservation only just passed away last september uh but lived i mean he was in he was in his nineties so i think he was he was near on seventy years there um so again i i got the idea well he should be he should be a profile in the fifty Irish lives you know um but again you just the the Irish are everywhere you just you just can't throw a stone when I find them somewhere, you know, and wherever you go. Um so yeah, the Arctic trip was was a privilege, but also actually quite productive, I think, from from that point of view. You know. It's like all these things, you know, Austin, you until you go somewhere, you can't really know it. You know?
1: And and I know <clears throat> I was privileged to be up there in the Cambridge Bay and Rankin Inlet and then in uh Callaway as well. And most Canadians don't ever get the opportunity to go up there. No. So it's, it's no. it is a privilege in every respect.
0: Totally, yeah, yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. Um, so for, while that was part of the year, um, you also cover down east and right down to into the Newfoundland. And were you able to get down there during twenty twenty
0: three? Yeah, no, I was there in uh, May, May of the previous year. We I didn't get a trip back there, but we had a very good trip there. And I've got I've got some plans for for Newfoundland. There, uh, it, it's very much on our radar screen um, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's just again the strength of the uh, the strength of the, the Irish heritage there is astonishing. I mean, it it really is, um, and we barely touched, uh, you know, New Brunswick and and uh, Nova Scotia and PEI. Um, the opening of the consulate in Toronto, uh, I think, is really important, not just for the fact that uh, Janice and William have done a terrific job there in establishing themselves, um, but in 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 being our base there. Uh, And having uh, Cathy over in in Vancouver, it means that we can, and we have done, we've divided Canada into kind of provincial regions. And um, uh, that means that we will be able to dive a bit more deeply into at the provincial level to find projects that we can actually work on. Uh, i don 't know how uh my predecessors here, you know a hardy band of three diplomats at any one time managed to cover Canada in any meaningful way. God bless them the work that they did but having a consulate in Vancouver and in toronto will will really uh, will really improve our presence our capacity to get in at the provincial level um particularly in the in in the Atlantic provinces as well where the heritage is is so strong you know so We've been looking at uh, we've been looking looking for projects in particularly Nova Scotia and and Newfoundland because of the strength of the Irish connection there. You know, but as you know, it's not just I often say that you know the it's not anybody can do a first meeting. It's a second meeting that counts. Then then you're onto something. So the key is to is to go back repeatedly and and find projects. You know, and uh, find them. We will absolutely yeah, particularly. Certain areas, I think, uh, there's the maritime uh, research element, but there's also education. Mm-hmm. I think there's huge scope to develop the educational links. There's already strong links between uh, the, at the technical colleges level between Ireland and Canada, but that can grow too. You know, so yeah, we're on the we have our radars turned on for for projects that we can we can uh, we can develop, and particularly get people to cross the Atlantic back and forth. That's really important, you know.
1: While you mention our large Canada is, I know that is not your only brief and your predecessors when they didn't have consulates, had Canada. But you also have uh, some Caribbean briefs, which right. uh, might sound, sound exotic and everything else. But uh, to actually get from there to here and function in a work capacity can be challenging at times.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We went down. And again, because of the pandemic, we weren't able to do it for the first two years. But we went down to the Bahamas and Jamaica. Um, uh, earlier this year, and I I did two reports from there. Uh, Fascinating uh, contrast between the two. Bahamas very much an island nation immersed in the sea, I mean, and and very vulnerable to sea level rises. Jamaica, much more inward looking. I I, I kind of said, you know, Ireland and Jamaica are quite similar. We don't quite see ourselves as islands. We're island nations in a way. And, but also fascinating because Jamaica was England's second island colony after Ireland. And of course, there's huge Irish connections in Jamaica. 25% are, are, have Irish ancestry. If you go into the local market and you ask for a potato, you get a sweet potato. If you want a white potato, you have to ask for an Irish, you know. Um, but they're doing very well, Jamaica. They've got good political leadership. Uh, we have a great, uh, honorary consul down there. Uh, we've Bill Mills in Bahamas and Brian Denning in Jamaica. So it was a pleasure to work with them. And we did find a project to support financially in Montego Bay, an adolescent wellness center, which has been uh, supervised by the EU. So we've got some plans uh, to develop there. Tomorrow I'm off to uh, Antigua, Barbuda. That's been added to my, my uh, responsibilities as well as St. Lucia. And the reason why they've been added is because they were formally accredited through our UN mission in New York. Uh, under what we call the uh New York formula but now we're accrediting all of the Caribbean countries to four ambassadors so that we can engage more seriously with them particularly in the context of climate change and the challenges faced by the small island developing states and so on um so again yeah the the logistics of getting down there are are challenging they're beautiful environments, um, but uh, they do need support across a whole range of issues, from climate change, development, digitization, water management, for example, is a very common a common issue. Um, but I'm glad to say that the the Irish government is putting a new focus on our relationship with the uh, with the Caribbean, and their, the the new consulate in Miami will be a, a centre for coordination on the Caribbean. So. Again, it's a good example of global Ireland and kind of um, not just opening embassies, but actually trying to make a difference in in different regions around the world.
1: And, of course, it's a national holiday in, um, well, in Barbuda, uh, on Montserrat, actually, is the 17th of March.
0: Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. Big Irish influence there as well. (laughs) Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Indeed. Um, So. While you're coming up and wrapping up, coming towards the end of the year, uh, I have to compliment you also on the wonderful article you had in The Citizen. Oh, thanks. Yeah, yeah,
0: Um, Yeah, I was very happy to do that. I was actually writing something about the influence of the the Irish in the lumber industry, and I was focused on um, George Hamilton, who came over and uh, took advantage of the fact that Napoleon – had had uh, blockaded Baltic timber going to Britain, and by that act, more or less single-handedly created the Canadian lumber industry. And but then I was thinking, you know, there were so many different pieces to the Irish influence in Ottawa. I kind of spun out this other article and sent it to the Ottawa citizens. so they published it on Saint Stephen's Day, and it was an attempt to try and capture just the many different and formative ways that um, that the Irish had shaped uh, Ottawa. You know, and sort of pulled to pull together a few a few very obvious instances of it, and uh, so yeah, I got a very good uh, reaction from uh, for, uh, to to the article um, from uh, from the Irish community here,
1: and I'm sure the ripple effect and they may not have reached back to you, but when you get up the valley and uh, over into uh, the Quebec side, uh, the the, oh, the, yeah. the relationship is there, and I know they would have been thrilled
0: to, be oh, able yeah. to see yeah, it yeah. documented. Well, it's great because uh, Lisa up in Vinosta, for example, um she's she's hoping to set up a um local Irish history course at the high school, um because of the kind of the discovery uh, because of the depth of the Irish influence up the Gatineau, for example, in, in Venosta, low Pogan Falls, all around there. In fact, the whole of the Gatineau Valley was farmed by the Irish, as you know. All up the up the up the uh, the um The Ottawa Valley itself, huge Irish community and heritage up in Douglas. It was unbelievable. Uh, Even Irish accents um, up in Renfrew, all settled by the Irish. Smith Falls, half of the residents of Smith Falls in 1871 were Irish born. I mean, unbelievable. So the whole hinterland uh, was Irish. Um, uh Professor Rosemary O'Flaherty at the University of Ottawa does the studies course there, said uh, when she saw the article, she's made it mandatory reading for her 100 students and 5% of their final test will will be on their comments on it. So, yeah, it's been it's it's been kind of good from that point of view, quite uh, catalytic. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So
1: and you zoned in on the stained glass window and uh, get us. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, again, a, a treasure of Irish art in St. Bart's Church, the stained glass window, which if, if, if people haven't seen it, they should go there early, preferably on a, on a, on a, on a morning so that sun comes through. It's a brilliant piece of art by William Inaguedes. Installed, actually, the first war memorial, interestingly enough, installed in 1919, but made in Dublin in, uh, on Tour de Lone, the, the, the glass studio in Palmerston Road. But uh, a fantastic piece of art and a beautiful stain. I mean, when you see it, I mean, people have ideas, kind of fixed ideas about stained glass. It looks like this is not like any stained glass window you've ever seen. It's incredibly powerful, you know. So just before Christmas, we did a, a concert called Under the Irish Window, which, is, which was good fun, you know. Um, but, yeah, I mean, in, uh, we're developing some ideas for the what I'm currently calling the Bytown Ottawa Irish Heritage Trail. But, I mean, it'll be a question of too many sites. I mean, uh, as you know from the article, O'Connor, you know Sparks and O'Connor Street, mm-hmm. the two, two lads from Ireland, uh, Nicholas uh, Nicholas Sparks, you know, effectively the 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 the, the real father of, of Ottawa City, you know, in, in terms of parceling out the land. I mean, the point of the article was I've I've no problem with Colonel By, but you know, if it takes a village to raise a child, it takes a community to make a town, and the Irish are very much involved in that, you know. So um, yeah, again, it just it, it changes in a way the way you look at Ottawa. You know when you know this Irish background and history, it really feels yeah we're you know the Irish are here it's mm-hmm. it's, it's, it's kind of reflects us too,
1: and Mcdonald Park has been progressing
0: yeah we've uh we have got funding for the ground penetrating radar um we have to get permission to do that. What we're hoping to do there is to find the three hundred remains of the famine victims from from eighteen forty seven and then make that part of another scheme we have, which is called the Famine Emigrant Way, which is the extension of the, the National Famine Way in Ireland, follows the footsteps of the Famine immigrants into Canada. Um, and we hope to mark each of the kind of where they were, obviously for the, 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 the kind of the common graves. So we have 5,400 remains from 1847 on Grosse Eel possibly 6,000 in Black Rock and then very significant uh, graves o- uh, elsewhere. But I think the real message is that if if 20% of the 109,000 who crossed uh, the Atlantic in 1847 died, um, 80% lived and mm-hmm. were welcomed by Canadians, even to the risk of uh, Canadians' uh, own lives, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, mm-hmm. Many of them died helping us and... Mark McGowan is doing some research on just how many. And uh, so we'll we'll have that significant list of Canadians who who helped the Irish and who, who, who died as a result. So a very heroic uh, humanitarian uh, response. So, uh, yeah, these are some of the things that will keep me busy between now and uh, departure in the summer.
1: And there was a reinterment ceremony of uh, some um, remains that had been discovered when the LRT work was going on.
0: Yeah, some more. They think the last. They're not sure. Um, and uh, I was there in Beechwood Cemetery where they, they 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 reinterred them there, um, because the first big grave in 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 Bytown, was as it was then, was at the foot of um the foot of Parliament Hill. Colonel By had to build a place for the workers who were dying from, mal- yeah, malaria. A lot of it, uh, industrial accidents and so on. Uh, in building the canal. And so, uh, you know, the, the, um, they were moved to Beechwood. Now they're sorry, they moved to McDonald's Gardens Park and then like somewhere moved then to Beechwood. Um, but, uh, yeah, interestingly yeah. enough, they, uh, the, the Irish Embassy location, um, uh, is on, is on that, that grave basically downtown at the, at the foot of the parliament. I mean, the other exciting thing we've been working on is we're moving our office to a new location in in the in the uh, 150 MedCap, so it's a builder's estimate and we all know to be careful about those but they tell me hands on heart that they'll be ready in in may or june so right. hopefully i'll be able to cut the ribbon on that before i go and we'll have a nice new a nice new office space where we want to, to welcome have, be proud to welcome people
1: so after a slight hiatus have you any idea what you're going to do with yourself
0: um, oh, i have to think about that. Uh, I have a lot of, uh, have a lot of writing. I hang on a second. I gotta kill this call. Um, I've got, uh, yeah, in terms of projects, I've got a lot of writing projects that I've I've kind of kept on the back burner for a while. And, uh, so that'll, that'll keep me busy as well, you know, but I, I haven't made any final decisions yet.
1: Your successor, John Concana, John was of course, uh, I met him. I think it was in 2016. He was involved. The ga- in-
0: well, he was yeah. The gathering, the Wild Atlantic Way, and of yeah. course the 2016 uh, cent- centenary uh, commemorations. You know, yeah. so yeah, yeah. John will bring his his energy to us, and uh, you know, we all we all do this job in a different way. Yeah. You know, so um, and that that's what that's what rounds out the relationship. Is we all we will pick certain things. I mean, certain projects will obviously keep going and need to be finished. He'll start his own and. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's a lucky man. It's a fantastic posting, you know.
1: So do you see yourself um, back in Dublin for the next indefinite period of time, or do you see yourself traveling and spending some time somewhere else?
0: It's hard to – oh, I think uh, it would be a mix, I'd say, because uh, my wife is American, so we have a transatlantic uh, family. We have a daughter here, and we have two kids back in Ireland, and there's a good good bit of back and forth um and i often say this to people who are immigrants you know and they think about should i go back to ireland or should i stay here i often say um you 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 have ultimately to to decide that you will live in two worlds you know and that's that's there's nothing wrong with that but just it is the way it is and there's no there's no resolution to that one side or the other and indeed there shouldn't be you are living in two worlds in many ways and so that's and as a diplomat, but particularly with uh, with an American wife and a transatlantic family, that's absolutely the case. So uh, no, it'll be it'll be uh, further travels, I'd imagine, one way or the, one way or the other, in whatever form. Yeah,
1: and it's interesting how you say that because I noticed that in order for me to maintain a relationship with my Irish friends,
0: yeah,
1: I need to listen to RTE. <laughs> yeah, yeah, <laughs> because I need to be able to converse in their world, because. Yeah. The, the the people at home do not listen to my world.
0: Yes. So exactly. in order
1: to maintain the relationship, the emigrant actually is the one that has to keep a, definitely a foot in both camps if they wish yeah. to maintain a relationship.
0: No, that's absolutely true. And and I think the you know the, the digital revolution has been a revolution in terms of your relationship with home because you can you can get RTE and you can read the newspaper and you can really you don't you won't lose touch uh in a way so it's it's not it's not as definitive as, as as it used to be by any stretch you know so um yeah you can you can remain intimate on and equally when you go to Ireland you can you can check out on the Canadian news as well so uh yeah we just we we, we live in that we live in a new world where all of these ex, all of these experiences and all of this input can be you know can be simultaneously managed you know and I, I, we're we're all the better for it to be honest mm-hmm. you know mm
1: mm-hmm. ambassador I really appreciate you taking the time. It's My been a pleasure. real pleasure. And thank you very much indeed. And I hope that you and I get to connect again before you do finally pack your bags. and uh, okay.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Look forward to it. And, uh, yeah, well, listen, keep up the good work, Austin. I know people love your show, and I'm always delighted to be on it. So look forward to, to another chat soon. Thanks.